Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Each week, Andrew Dewing will talk you through the current market, giving you up-to-date information and insider advice. He will also be interviewing a leader in the world of agriculture and finishing up with Farm Chat, which includes his favourite bit, where he tastes beer for free. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and his market report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows is my thoughts or gut instincts of what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. This is the Market Report for the 8th of October 2018. First things first, congratulations to Rob and Helen Mutimer for winning Farmers Weekly Pig Farmer of the Year Award. Thoroughly deserved. We hope to be interviewing Rob in a week's time on our podcast. Well done, you two. Right, the market. Wheat, pretty dull old stuff, as I keep saying, a bit repetitive. It's gone up a diddy bit, 172 X farm for November. Nothing exciting. There's no new exports. There's no fresh new set of buyers. The world has moved up a little bit. The rumours about Russia reducing their exports have raised its head for the third time. Rumour number three, price rise number three. I guess at some point it will be confirmed, but by which time we'll all be bored and we won't do anything about it. So buy the rumour, sell the fact. Farmers are not engaged in marketing, particularly at the moment. They are very, very busy, genuinely out there working. New crop, we've got a slight change of mood as a business at the moment because of that dry weather. Um, You can't ignore continuous dry weather and the rest of Europe or the northern Europe across to um, Russia have had a very dry time and certainly in France there's rapeseed being pulled up and which will go into spring barley or corn or something else. The point being that it is it has been very very dry in northern Europe and at this point in time we have to say if it doesn't rain significantly then there may well be Um, reduction in crop size so we're now putting on hold our ambitions to sell new crop if you take a long-term view I still believe it's the correct decision I think these prices are exceptionally good especially considering the risk of an adverse Brexit deal that is a risk you face if there isn't an adverse one then then the price will obviously go up great but there is a risk that it might be bad for you so long-term view selling new crop wheat at 158x farm for Uh, more than that, sorry, 160 nearest, damn it, for November next year is a really good price. Oilseed rape, well, Webby is a superstar. He's very thin, having called him fat last week. Um, The market has gone up, as he predicted, and as has new crop with the problems that we've previously mentioned. So stick with new crop, we think it is going up further. Old crop rape, set a target price, you know, maybe 330 or 340, um... I think it's it's reasonable to expect the market to continue to rally at the moment, but let's not get uh, too carried away and lock some of that price in. Once you put 330 in place, you've got a, a £30 premium near enough to add to it, and that's a very good return. I've got one thing to say back on the wheat market uh, at the moment. If, if you avid futures watchers have noticed, the, the price for November and the price for May in this crop year have come a lot closer to each other this morning november futures got back up to 180 and at the same time may futures were trading at 184.50 now the spread as you technical guys know it to be known as is only four pounds 50 a ton whereas if you asked your local farm guy to give you a bid for for wheat he would probably give you a six pound carry between those two dates the point being 
the futures market has a number of people who've classically hedged farm purchases by selling futures. And we're coming up to the, the moment in uh, late October when people who own futures stores announce, right, well, here's the wheat. You can actually have wheat instead of the futures sale. And a lot of people don't run or own future stores, and they therefore have to get out of their contracts. So what's happening is those guys are buying in their November, and there aren't many people readily prepared to sell it at the same time. So they're getting squeezed a little bit, and the forward price is the only way they can carry their hedge on. In other words, they buy the November, and they sell the May, and that maintains their hedge against the grain they bought from the farmer. That squeeze will continue for the next week, 10 days, and then it will all be over. And I expect the prices between November and May to move out again to a more serious level. But it has helped spot prices push up a little bit uh, through a technical reason. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. RTK Farming is the UK's leading independent supplier of RTK signal to the farming industry. With RTK delivered via radio or SIM card, RTK Farming can work with any make of GPS equipment, from aftermarket systems such as Trimble and Topcon to factory-fitted equipment. With low annual subscription costs and discounts for multiple vehicles, RTK Farming is the solution. For more information go to rtkfarming.co.uk. We're going to be doing a series of science interviews, and as that heads into highly intelligent areas, I've decided to send Claire down to do the interview, and she's off to the John Inn Centre, our local world-renowned agricultural science centre, to speak to the leaders in crop genetics. So over to Claire. So today I'm here with Christabel Wawi, who's Professor in Wheat Genetics at the John Innes Centre. And um, we're going to talk about the wheat genome, aren't we? Fantastic, yes. So please, can you explain about what made the wheat genome such a hard code to crack and why it took, I understand, 13 years? It took a long time. So the wheat genome is, is fascinating, and, and it's one of those uh, big endeavors that uh, we took up as a, as a community. Um, there are several things that make it very difficult. Um, the first thing is just its vast size. So it's five times the size of everyone who's listening, the five times the size of the human genome. Wow. So just the scale of it makes it daunting. Then the other feature it has is that wheat is a polyploid. So that means that unlike humans, that um, we have a copy of mom and dad of our chromosomes, wheat actually has six of those copies, okay? So it's actually made up of three genomes that each one has two copies. So it's, it's a really complicated genome. And not only does it have three versions of each one of these genomes, um, the genomes are relatively recently uh, come together, and that means that their sequence is very similar. So um, they're, let's say, 98 97% similar. And on top of that, roughly 80% of each one of them is repeat sequence. So... The analogy that we like to use is like doing a jigsaw puzzle right. where you have three jigsaw puzzles that are almost identical that have been put in one box. Yeah. And then each one of them had about 80% of them are blue skies. And in there you have, you know, a few little pieces here and there of, uh, of decoration or let's say of, of a house here and there. And that's it. And then you, that, that's the wheat genome. And now you have to find a way to assemble that and put it in order and not make any mistakes. So it took a long time to be able to separate the, the three different genomes, to sequence them, and then to put them from one end to the other. But, but it's, it's, it's almost perfect, and, and that's what we've achieved. Amazing. 
Why was it so important to complete this work? Can you explain how scientists will use it? So I think there's two things with the with the wheat genome. Um, there's a discovery phase that a lot of scientists are involved with. And then, of course, then is how you take that information and you get it into a variety that grows in farmers' fields. And, right. of course, the breeders are really good at that. And, of course, we work very closely with the breeders. So there's tricks to accelerate the breeding side, um, as you probably talked about, so speed breeding and, and, and getting more efficient at that process. But I think that for, for wheat, we're very excited because... Um, with the genome, we think that we will be able to uncover variation or, or phenotypes or traits in the field that we haven't seen before. Right. And that'll explain why. So I mentioned before that wheat is a polyploid. It has three versions of every gene that are relatively similar. Um, and what happens is that it's like, again, walking to a room and having three light switches. If you have three light switches, you turn one off. Perhaps it gets a little bit you know, darker, but it's, there's still plenty of light. And you don't really get something completely dark until you turn the three light switches off. Right. right. So many of the genes or many of the traits um, in wheat are probably hiding a lot of variation because uh, natural variation might have changed one version of the three copies. But it will be very rare that you, all three copies are changed in a single plant. Right. Um, to date, all the mutations or let's say the major mutations that we see in the field like uh, the genes that affect uh, height or photoappearance sensitivity or, or flowering time and so on, those major genes that were selected during domestication, they all are called their dominant mutations. A dominant mutation means it's a mutation, it's like uh, having the master switch and turning all the lights on or all off. Right. So with one mutation, they all come on or off. So that's great. But there's a lot of variation that is, is subtle in wheat. And right. that subtleness, we believe, and based on the examples we have, comes from the fact that Mutations in one copy will give you part of the effect, but not the full story. So as we have the genome, we'll be able, and we already are getting much closer, and we're finding genes that have explained part of that variation for a trait. And all of a sudden, what we're seeing is that when we know one gene, we can then modify or find variation in the other two copies. And when we combine that variation, all of a sudden, we uncover variation like we've never seen it before. And that's the really exciting part, because... Breeders have done a fantastic job at selecting these small effects and putting them together into varieties. And that's why it's so hard to recreate a variety in wheat because there's all these small effects coming together. So we think that by having the genome, we'll be able to identify some of these small effects and then look for variation in the other two copies. And then with genetic markers, those can be combined purposely. And by doing that, all of a sudden now, we're going to see variation that we've never really seen before because the chances of that happening are so slim in, in, in nature just by chance. But now breeders will be able to do it. And, and the next step will be how do breeders use the genomic information to be sure that those varieties are better? Because at the end of the day, the variety still needs to grow in a field with uh, management, with agronomic conditions. And it's now saying how not to get swarmed with all this genomic data to be sure that at the end of the day, the variety performs on farmers' fields. So, um, so Christopher is showing me a slide now with um, the different, like um, a wild type and then single, double or triple mutations. Is that right? Yes. And when you hit the triple mutations, that's all three light switches being turned on or, or off. off. Depends. Yeah, or in this off. case, they're all off. OK, then you're getting like a 21 percent increase in um, the weight. Is that right? Yes. The and grain. the weight of the grain. So this is good news for farmers, I think. Yeah. So the, the point the point here is that. 
those those the the variation that breeders are selecting is usually very subtle, five percent, four percent. That's why it's really hard to be a wheat breeder, you know, right? Uh, and, and to track those effects. And then maybe it's four percent in one location, three percent in another. In some years, it's zero. So it's very hard. You've got all the other combinations as well of exactly. weather and what have you, right? Exactly. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is trying to open up that variation to be able to study it better. And then um, this example is where one gene that is in the UK germplasm, this mutation that increases grain size by 6%, and breeders have actually fixed this, this variation. Now when we looked at the variation in the other two genomes, we can now increase variation by 20% in terms of the grain wow. size. It doesn't mean that that's 20% increase in yield. This is the size of the grain. This is field data. But now we're working with the breeders to introduce these three mutations into UK materials to then see how it will behave and the different genotypes, groups one, group fours, and so on, to see how that variation will behave. And how long will it be before this might be, you know, available, as it were, to... It's probably, we're, we're probably talking six years. Right. Um, and perhaps on, on, a, on a slight tangent, the, the frustrating thing for, the, for us scientists from the genome editing side um, is that uh, these mutations, we've identified them through... Um, through a population we developed, um, but of course then we need to put those mutations into UK varieties. Yeah. But we could recreate exactly the same mutations with uh, gene editing. Right. And what we could do there is we could take the best variety on the market, we could take Skyfall, and if we thought that these mutations were going to be better, we could take Skyfall, bring it to the lab, make those three mutations in those three precise genes that we know about, yep. and then within a year we would be able to have seed and see if that is, is, is better or not. We would need to bulk the seed and probably two or three years, that would be on every farmer's field if they wanted to. Wow. And that's the, the frustrating thing, that when we make these new mutations, we're making it in varieties that uh, we develop resources for, but those cultivars, let's say, are not the, the lead cultivars that are in the field and farmers right now. Right. So breeders will need to take our material, cross it to their varieties, and then start the process almost from zero, but at least with the markers so they know they can follow them. So then right. that could become a variety in six or seven years, depending on the breeder. In this case, with gene editing, we could theoretically take a variety, do something in the lab with it, and get it out into the field within a year and bulk the seed and get it to farmers very soon after. So that's, uh, but that's, gene editing is not allowed, is that what you're saying? Well, the EU doesn't allow it, so that, right. that's a, the recent court ruling. Yeah. So that's a frustration because by having the genes, that discovery phase will be so much faster. But now how that goes to farmers' fields will still require, in a way, the traditional method, which works, but it does take time. Right. So yeah. if we had gene editing, these changes that, in a way, it will look exactly the same in the farmer's field, but it will look the same in 10 years' time rather than two right. years' time. Yeah. And that's the frustrating part because we have all this excitement about the discovery, and, and our excitement about discovery is to, you know, to understand biology, but also to get it to the field. Yeah. And we know how we can get it to the field, but we can't. <laughs> and that, that, that's what hits and us. And that up. happened really recently, that ruling, didn't it? That happened very recently. And I think that many of, of colleagues here and in other institutions and universities uh, and other trade bodies have written to Michael Gove to ask for his opinion about this looking forward because right. there is an opportunity that, that we take a different stance from Europe uh, moving forward. Um, and that we allow this investment in agricultural research to really shine through because it is an opportunity right. that, that we have. For consumers and, and for farmers to a certain extent, like what will be the impact over, you know, within 10 years, do you think? So one of the things that we're working on um, <clears throat> is trying to understand yield stability. Um, so that means the varieties that will be stable uh, over over years, but also over different environments. Right. We have the yield gap of varieties behaving very well in breeder trials or 
AHDB um, trials, but then on site on farmers' fields, sometimes they don't behave the same way. Right. So I think that we will understand more about the genetics of that and and how we can work with uh, uh, agricultural management to be sure that on farm yields do reach their potential. And I think what will happen is that we are already seeing how. Uh, many of the varieties, uh, you know, they have, as I said, PCH1 or SM1 or certain uh, qualities. I think we'll, we'll be able to do much more predictive breeding. Breeders will still need to grow lots of plants. They'll still need to, it's still a numbers game, but right. they're going to be able to hedge their bets more favorably because the varieties or the cultivars that will be out in the field and that they will select will have a higher chance of being better varieties. That means at the end that uh, the varieties that are going to be produced should be better quality, better yield, more stable, better disease resistance. So varieties don't fall from one year to another like we sometimes see with yellow rust and others. So these will be varieties that will have more information in them, meaning that they should be more resilient to weather and then they should yield more stably, better quality, and so on. What have you learned about the structure of wheat through doing this? I think somebody mentioned that it, like they'd sort of seen a beauty within it kind of thing. Like, um, Did you feel that you have learned anything about wheat in the process of the genome? Yeah, so so I think, yeah, we, well, I'm fascinated by wheat. So it's, uh, And in, in the work that we did in terms of looking at how genes were expressed, it's a really cool uh, example because what... By having three versions of every gene, um, all of a sudden you have an experiment. with Wheat is an experiment in itself um, because it has three versions of every gene. It can also experiment on those versions. It can change one and see what happens. Right. Um, and then, or, so we found that uh, very nicely that, that wheat, for, for those genes that are very important for the basic biology of wheat, meaning, and that, we, and that are genes that we share with humans, like things that have to do with um, how the the cell divides or that the DNA replicates correctly so you have two cells that are identical rather than having mistakes. Those genes we call housekeeping genes are very important for the plant to survive or for winter. Those genes, the plant doesn't touch them. The three genomes are expressed almost identically. The sequence is almost identical. The the plant takes good care of them. But then we see that those genes that have to do with how the plant responds to the environment, uh, let's say genes that um, how they respond to a stimuli or to a disease or to drought. So genes that have more to do with environmental response, the, the wheat genome is playing with them. It's, its evolution is acting on them, and you can see it. So those genes tend to be the three copies of, the, of that version of the gene. Uh, you can see that already they're trying to change. One of them is trying to be expressed more highly in the roots. Another version of that gene is being more expressed in the leaves, and that means that they're what we call sub-functionalizing. They're becoming specialized in a function in the roots, in the grain, in the leaf, and so on, uh, but not the other genes. The housekeeping genes, no, they don't change. Wow. But these other genes that have to do with how the plant responds to the environment, the, 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 the fact that you have three copies, the, the three switches, also allows you to play with them. Right. To say, well, you know, if I lose one, it's not that bad, so I can just let it evolve differently. And if it evolves differently, perhaps it's a good thing. But it's a bad thing, the plant dies. If it's a good thing, that plant will survive and it will be better adapted to the environment. So we see that wheat has this capability of adapting to the environment. And that's why wheat is one of the most widespread crops in the world. You grow it from, you know, from all the way from southern Argentina, almost Patagonia, through the UK, uh, and so on. And, and, and the fact that it has the three copies allows it to be functional, or allows it to be, let's say, malleable to the different environments. And now we're seeing at the molecular level how it's doing it. It's allowing the three genomes to evolve differently when those genes respond to the environment. But the other genes, it, it cares for them very carefully. So you can see how evolution in, 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 
in the genome with this data. And it's fascinating to now see how we can use those principles to improve improve them for agriculture, improve some of those genes for agriculture. Oh, that's amazing. Gosh. And so in a way, wheat was always kind of designed to be quite an adaptable plant. Is that what you're saying? I mean, if, if, if there was a chance event that happened 10,000 years ago. So wheat... The, 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 the three versions of these genomes, uh, the, they are three wild grasses that, that you, would, you, know, you would kill if you saw them in, in, in your lawn and so on. Right. Um, but then those three grasses, you know, two of them met 400,000 years ago by chance in the, in the Middle East. And they, for some reason, were able to come together and not, not be a fluke, not, not, not be sterile. Right. And they came together and they evolved for 400,000 years. And then 10,000 years ago, uh, we had this, this event where this, this third genome came in, and that's what gave bread wheat. And that was, you know, people will, will be religious or not religious, but, you know, it's one of those things that it was a very important event for humanity because without right. that, you know, wheat is at the center of human domestication. And that event allowed bread wheat to happen, the, the wheat that has three copies. And then that is the wheat that then went around the world, uh, more so than, than durum wheat or pasta wheat. Right. So having the three copies allowed wheat to be flexible uh, and evolution uh, by by making those those that that variety or that type of wheat that had the three versions allowed then um, people to domesticate it and then evolve in many different ways by having the three versions of the genome. So, uh, in, what, in what nature provided, then humans domesticated it and and and, and tweaked it. But but without having those three genomes, uh, wheat would have been a very different story. We we you know we would it would have been a very different story for human civilization. Wow, that's really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing all this with us. Uh, we look forward to seeing the results of the wheat genome in 10 years' time. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. Crush Foods produces a unique range of single-variety, cold-pressed rapeseed oils. All their seed is grown here in Norfolk. They only press a single variety for its taste and they believe that this is what gives the oil the light, nutty flavour people like. Available in local shops across Norfolk, Suffolk and beyond. Visit crush-foods.com for more information. And now it's time for Farm Chat. This week... We are at the Recruiting Sergeant in Cultural, and this week's beer is Bullard's Number One Pale Ale. Tell me all about it, Webby. It's a uh, East Coast Pale Ale. It's um, nice, light, uh, citrusy. Uh, it says it's got a zingy aftertaste, which yeah, I can account for that. Um, bright and golden, and it shows off what modern beer can do. What do you reckon? What's your thoughts? I'm going to try it. Yeah, that's good. As a good, fresh beer, I like that. I can have a good session with that. First one being free, I like it even more. Let's hope the second one's free as well. (laughs) So, this week in Farm Chat, we're going to talk about Brexit. Now, there's a very good subject for all of us to get uh, argumentative about. We both know our views, because we've discussed it enough in the office, but it's a tricky one. And let's face it... We're all going to dinner parties or going to things where people who have one opinion get a little bit emotional with people with the other opinion. Absolutely. Elephant in the room. um, And it's part of everyday discussion at the moment. Do you think it's important to talk about it or do you think it is pointless um, because it's all speculation? I think sometimes it's an opportunity to be 
provocative. I mean, for example, when I'm with my mother-in-law, she's in complete denial about the Conservative Party's involvement in the whole process. And it's quite funny to say, well, actually, it was David Cameron who came up with the idea of having the referendum. Then he left, having said he would serve his term out. Then he ran off to his £14 million house and said, we're all in it together. And then Theresa May has spent her time just trying to keep in power. And the, the ducking and the weaving over that has made it's quite an easy target to wind my mother-in-law up, so it's actually quite good fun. What do you... uh, Let's bring it closer to our customers, and what do you think farmers voted for, in or out? Well, we we had a a meeting the day before the the vote, and famously it was marginally in favour of stay in in the room, but there were something like 18 farmers in the room that voted to not receive their subsidy, as far as I could see it. What do you think of Michael Gove? My view is he's out to get the what he sees as the privileged few. He is somebody who is saying, or going around lots of places around the UK, meeting lots of farmers, kind of saying enough to keep them happy in that meeting, but not really giving or showing his cards. I think that he's going to be pretty ruthless on subsidy and he's going to take quite a lot of it away where where do you see the uh the subsidy down the line do you think it will it be an environmental style payment if farmers are paid to grow flowers then it will be lovely there'll be lots of lovely flowers and everyone will be happy and flowers will be cheaper in the shops however food will be a bit more expensive and because we're completely blind as to whether we're going to have tariffs on imports of grain or tariffs on exports of grain the price of food could well go up now if farmers are paid to have lots of flowers and there is less production and we have to pay tariffs on imports of grain because we haven't come to a brexit deal that sticks then everyone in the street is all of a sudden going to be paying lots more money for their bread because the uk at the moment is not producing enough grain to feed itself So it's a very dodgy piece of ground that they're trading on, in my opinion. What do you think? Well, um, farmers currently receive £3 in annual subsidies from the EU, and it's a very important income within the farming, well, farm incomes, of course. To me, it seems a crucial part of agriculture. Going back to our our industry, have you noticed over recent months um, farmers... Um, decision-making changes as a result of Brexit. Yeah, I mean, we can't we can't make a decision as to whether, after the 29th of March, whether we're going to see any exports we try and achieve on the feed barley that we can sell abroad, whether there's going to be a tariff. Bluntly, should we sell everything before the 29th of March so there's no tariff, or should we hold on to it because it's going to be a kind of um, internal market that we have control over will we be importing after the 29th of march will there be no competition coming into the uk until we get some clarity and real clarity where everybody agrees on it and then more importantly if we can get our brexit negotiating team to agree something between themselves will europe say no hard brexit means tariffs means everything we export has a, has a tax everything we import has a tax and in the short term that's got to be pretty bad for UK agriculture. Do you think the farmers thought of that when they voted leave? Good question, Andrew. How did people vote? Did they vote with their heart or their head? I think there was probably a generational influence. I voted Remain because I could see peace as the biggest issue in Europe, having had 
a little bit of uh, reading of history, not not massively, being a century modern schoolboy. Um, didn't do a lot of reading, but their history says that Europe falls out with each other. And I'm irritated by Barnier and Juncker by their, the way they, they negotiate with us. It's not their fault. We've stuck our fingers up at them and we seem affronted that they get upset with us. That isn't right. The reality is we've left. We've said we don't like what you do and we want to do it our own way. Unfortunately, we haven't come up with a conclusive way in which we should do it. And then when we do, funnily enough, them funny old Europeans or those continentals decide that they aren't going to accept it. Does that make them in the wrong? No. This subject is going to go round and round in circles for many months. The, the reality of Gove, whether he's still in place, whether we still have Theresa May as Prime Minister, whether we have a complete new election is, is, is all a possibility. As we sit at the moment, I think we're in a very poor negotiating position. But let's take a much longer term view. In 10 years' time, we will have something that works and we will be independent of a number of rules that tie you down within Europe. You have to be positive. The people voted, and so that's what we decided to do. Go with it. Take the long-term view. We should be healthy, wise, and okay in 10 years' time. Take a short-term view. I think we're going to go through a bit of difficult times, and I think that there will be a lot more arguing and a lot more emotion shown by the time we get to the end of March 2019. I think the most important thing for us is to consider the implications for farmers' income post-Brexit. At the moment, you know, there's a number of issues that are so uncertain that we've got, and we've had several debates about it. I think there's uh, an awful lot at stake at the moment, a lot of uncertainties of, of where we go. Beyond March 13, farmers can clearly sell grain advan- in advance as protection against uh, Brexit and an unknown um, circumstance. There's a lot of risk management tools, options. And forward, forward prices are good, aren't they? Let's face it. Locking into what is definitely a profit before we know whether there's tariffs on our exports or what is the reaction to price going to be? I think for 2019 harvest and 2020 harvest, with the prices as they stand, it would be very foolish not to have a large percentage fixed in. I appreciate that the, the heights of the market in 2018 because of drought, but if you know there's opportunities to cash settle or use options later, that's fine, you can do that. In the meantime, before any announcement comes out, I think we need to get our farmers to seriously consider selling significant tonnages of both those years because it takes the risk out. Not one to sound like a typical rep, but uh, it's never wrong to book a profit. Yeah, I agree with that. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they're released. Dewing Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, we can supply you with the best strategies to help you achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Call now on 01263 731 550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk or follow us on Twitter. We are at dewinggrain. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by Tinshed Productions in conjunction with East Coast Design Studio.